touch off last week with verse 10. We're using a few Bibles to Bible, that's page 981. You know, you're just looking at the Bible, the verse is off, the number is off. Verse 50 is chapter 1. We're looking today at verse 10 through 18. So, we have 10 through 17.
They had people who were sharply divided. They were very partisan. They said, oh, are you on this team or do you follow this person? Who is it that you follow? And as we're going to see today, the problem with the Corinthians was that they missed the main thing because they were so caught up in the smaller things. I wonder how often that affects the way that we live our lives. How much time do you spend? This is, well, in the uh, Financial Peace University, great class. You really ought to take it. You're almost done now. It's a great class. One of the things they have you do is add up your budget. And one of the questions that he asks you is, when you look at your budget and you look at how at the things that you're spending the most money on, are you spending the most money on the things that are most important to you? And that's, of course, one of the real problems of credit cards and things like that is people spend money without thinking about spending money and their life gets out of balance. You do it with your time, too, don't you? If I asked you what you spend the most time doing versus what's most important to you, jarring. They did some studies uh, on how much time, well, they had kids wear recorders to record how much parents talk to their kids. Uh, they found that it depended a lot on your uh, economic level and things. And the more you, you know, the wealthier kids started school almost a year ahead because their parents talked to them more. While poor kids, they almost only heard commands do this, top that. <clears throat> but a, a similar type thing, they recorded how much time fathers spent talking to their kids on average. And I don't have the exact number. I should have written it down. So I'm going to be, I'm just going to estimate and give you the rough idea. The average father spends 15 minutes a day total talking to his kids. 15 minutes. So I'm telling you that on average, kids spend more time with Barney or whoever than they do with their father. To some extent, we have lost the main things and sacrificed what really matters. It happens in our Christian service, too. We get so caught up in saying, okay, we need to start on time, and we need to finish on time, and we need to have this number of songs that needs to be like this, and we need to make sure that everybody's on the right note. And we get so caught up in all these things that don't matter that we spend more time thinking about a typo on the screen than we do about the meaning of what we're saying. We get so caught up in so many things that don't matter. <coughs> we worry about the order of things and neglect what counts. And just like in that pool, they were not satisfied until that flag was perfect. We should not be satisfied until we can offer service pleasing to God. But how often do we give God something half tucked and half done and say, here you go, I'm going to move on with something else? So this is so convicting. This is so powerful, I think. I'm going to read through this section of the text because it's very sweeping. He says, verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are in the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Paulus, and I have Cephas, and I am Christ. Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanas. Besides that, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that this letter that Paul wrote under the influence of your spirit 2,000 years ago still speaks to us today. It still tells us that the problems that we face are the same problems that everyone else has faced. That the, the things we struggle with, the needs that we have, are the same throughout the ages. And the solution is always the same, the return to your cross. So I just ask, Father, that as we study your word today, that you would bring it so close to our hearts, that you'd transform us with it, that we would no longer be divided, but that we would be drawn close to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Division is massive in our society today. I told you last week that in Corinth, one of the philosophers of Corinth, Seneca, wrote that the problem with the Corinthians was that their debaters were more interested in winning approval for themselves than for their case. They were more interested in winning people over with their rhetoric and their speech than they were with getting people to know the truth. They more wanted to get a pat on the back than they wanted to make things change. Now, how different is that from our country today? Is a really interesting thing. If you look at the, if you ever get a chance to go and look up the first televised presidential debate, first televised presidential debate was between uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And you listen to them, and they each have long speeches where they quote facts and they quote studies and they give numbers. And they say, This is what I believe, and these are three reasons why I believe that, and here's four effects that will happen if you do what I want to do. Has anybody watched any of the presidential debates lately? It's not like that, is it? What is it? It's about getting the best 10-second soundbite that we get chewed up and fed to us over and over again. It's not about facts. It's not about what's true. It's about, <laughs> it's about personalities. It becomes a contest of personalities. Here's an interesting thing. In almost every presidential election in history, you don't have to look at the issues to figure out who's going to win. Since the advent of television, especially, <clears throat> do you know how you can tell who's going to win a presidential election? It's an interesting thing. You need to look this up and see that I'm right. The person who's taller wins. You say, well, I'm not like that. Yes, you are. It's, there's somebody with this kind of imposing presence, and they almost always win. If it, I want to say 90% of presidential elections you could predict based on the height of the people. That's enough to make you scratch your head. But we don't care about substance, do we? We care about flash. We don't care about truth. We care about the impression we can make. We don't care about saying what's true and believing what's true. We care about what other people think of us. How much time do you spend thinking about what other people think of you? How much time, how much energy do you spend doing things based on the reaction that you're going to have from other people? Corinth was infested 
They broke it into factions. Some of them said, well, I am for Paul. Some of them said, well, you know, I'm a Peter person. Some of them said, well, I always follow Cephas. Some of them said, well, I, I follow after Jesus. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But there's this constant pulling and tugging and this division. And do you know how effective a church is when it's divided up like that? Not. Let's look at verse 10. I'm going to get ahead of myself. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've got some things to point out to you here. How seriously do you think Paul takes the subject of division? Problem. One thing I'm going to tell you is look how he introduces it. He says, now I beseech you. That means I beg you. The first thing I want you to know is that if Paul were in a church today that was divided, he would say, I beg you to stop. He goes further. I beseech you, brethren. Now, what does that mean? Now, of course, that's the word Adelphos. Uh, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philo means love. Adelphos means uh, brothers. And it means brothers and sisters. Okay? He says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, don't be divided. I'm begging you because you're a family. In a family, it's not appropriate for people to say, well, I'm on this person's side, or I'm on this person's side, or I'm on this person's he says, you're all in this together. And you say, well, in my family, we do that. Well, here's the problem. In a family that's functioning the way that God designed for it to function, there's not, well, I'm on her side and I'm on his side. And when that happens, there's always a deeper issue, isn't there? There's always people have lost sight of the main thing and have gotten caught up in smaller things. It happens in churches, it happens in families, it happens all over the place. But Paul first says, I beg you, that adds some intensity to it. And I beg you has got a I beg you is a little more gentle than I beseech you. We don't really say beseech anymore, but it means I'm asking you a little bit and I'm also telling you a little bit. Did your parents ever do that to you? How many times do I have to ask you to clean your room? Well, I answered you. I said no. It's not, it's not that kind of ask. When Paul says, I beseech you, he's saying, would you please go and do it right now before I come and give you a spank? He says, you need to take this action. I beseech you, brethren, look at this, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does the name mean? What do we think of? When I go and uh, I buy some something from the store. No, I've got a better example. I've got a better example because we just went to church camp and I came back. When you're driving down highway, the highway and you're out of home and you say, you know, I really need to stop somewhere and I need to go somewhere where the coffee is going to be hot, the tea is going to be fresh, the bathrooms are going to be clean. Buckies, right? You say, <laughs> I'm driving down the road and I see this gas station. It looks pretty well lit, but I don't recognize that name. Okay. And you drive a little further. You say, aha, here's Bucky's. I know that name and I know what that name means. Okay? Except the one that's so, I know that name, and I know what that means. It's the authority, it's the representation, it's the character, it's the reputation of it. He says, on behalf of Jesus, by the character of Jesus, by the authority of Jesus, by the reputation of Jesus, as a representative of Jesus. That's what it means to do something in somebody's name. 
When you pray in Jesus' name, you say, I pray in Jesus' name, I pray. What you mean is that you hope that everything that you said matches up with who Jesus is and what Jesus wants. Okay, everybody follow with me? So when Paul says, don't be divided, he says, I beg you, your brothers, and I'm not saying this on my own behalf, I'm saying this is contradictory. The way you're acting is contradictory of who Jesus is. Finally, the last thing I want to point out to you is this. I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord. What does Lord mean? It means king. It means master. He says, if Jesus is really the one that you follow, if Jesus is really your Lord, you're not going to keep living the way that you've been living. You're not going to stay so divided. You're not going to rip apart his family. That's a big deal. There's a lot there. I wish that we had time to wrap it all up. But there's a reason that in the Bible, if you're involved, if you're a church member and you're involved in any sin, and you know someone comes and talks to you about it, then they take two or three people with them, and then if they still won't listen, they take it to the church, and you have multiple chances to try to restore people for any sin except divisiveness. <laughs> Titus 3.10 says, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition rejects. Heretic does not mean somebody who believes false things. Heretic means divider. Somebody who's divisive, somebody who tries to split a church, he says, warn them once, and with the second time, show them the door. You don't get as many chances, except because it's so destructive, it's poison. Being divisive is poison. And you know that in your family, don't you? I bet that you are related to somebody who is a professional discord sower. Whenever people are getting along, they feel like there's something wrong with that. They're going to go and they're going to kind of stir the pot a little bit. And they may not go and say things that are untrue exactly, but they phrase things in a certain way, they plant things, and then suddenly two people are not talking to each other and one of them doesn't know why. Do you think that doesn't happen in churches? I, um, I know I've told you this before. I don't remember when, but it was too good for me to have sat on for this long. I went to a meeting once at a church called Calvary Missionary Baptist Church. As sure as I am standing here, honestly, this is true. When I walked in out of the front door of Calvary Missionary Baptist Church, where my neighbor's house is right here, that's up for sale, there was a church, Mount Calvary Baptist Church. Now, and I, I heard you know, stories about, well, you know, there was a division and this person, these people didn't like the change of the carpet color or they felt like something was, and so they packed up and left and start their own church with the color they wanted or whatever. But do you know, it's never about carpet color when churches divide. It's never about music or any of those things. You know, it's, about, it's about people saying, well, I'm going to follow this person and I'm going to follow this person out. Paul here says, if Jesus is your Lord, there's only one person to follow. Now, some of you, and I say this as kindly as possible, get so devoted to political leaders or whatever that you get swept up in the same kind of thing. 
Have you ever noticed that uh, there are some people who their their party can do no wrong? Like somebody in their political party can say can say anything, and then the uh, they would find some kind of an explanation for it. Like you sit out on both sides. But that's because we get more caught up in people than in truth. We get more concerned with following certain leaders than Jesus. I'm going to say one more thing. Right now we're in the summer slump. Summer starts. Fewer people come to church. I don't know why. Weather's nice. But I know, and I've talked, I know that most other pastors experience the same thing. That when the pastor is not here, fewer people come to church. Now, what is that? That's worldliness. That's sin. That's getting caught up in a person more than in Christ. That's all that I'm going to say about that right now. Now, I beseech you, brethren, he's, he's so emphatic. Here's what I want you to know, is that Paul is not joking around when he says, quit taking sides and quit getting in fights. He says, I beg you in the name, I beg you, brothers and sisters, in the authority and in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you what? That you speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. This does not mean that they all have to be exactly the same. You know, Paul's later going to talk about how different Christians are like different parts of a body, how the hand does one thing and the foot does another thing and the eye does another thing. But he's saying if the body is not all moving together, okay, if my right hand says, you know, I'd really like to go get something to eat, and my left hand says, you know, I really want to go to the beach. Okay. Pull in opposite directions. And then my brain says, you know, I've always thought that the right hand was such a good leader. I'm going to follow him. And the beat said, no, we like the left hand. Suddenly you got a mess. They had this uh, college Bible study that I sat in on. And I really liked the, the, the point that they, that the guy was facilitating for the change. I hope you're about to preached at the national meeting. The guy in Indonesia uh, created a written language for the, the yes on everything. He, uh, he made a really good point. He said that sometimes you get really frustrated with yourself, with others about yourself. He said, but what if you realize that what you're getting frustrated with is the way that God made you? And he said, can you imagine if your heart said, I just can't stop pumping. I just can't stop pumping. I just can't stop pumping. Well, maybe it's because that's what your heart was designed to do by God. And maybe you just need to figure out how to use it correctly. Now, your lungs, I just can't quit breathing. I just can't quit breathing. Here's where you have a problem, is if your lungs decide they're going to start pumping blood, and your heart decides it's going to start pumping air. The problem that we have is when we get out of our lane, when we get out of what God has designed us for, and we try to do something God has designed somebody else for. See, I, so you go to these meetings and stuff, and they're always looking for suckers, okay, to volunteer to do things. And uh, they're always, for whatever reason, so I'm pretty good with parliamentary procedure and stuff. And so people are always trying to get me to be clerk. Now, I am built for being a secretary about as well as your heart is built to pump air, okay? I'm just, I am not wired for keeping things in the right piles. Okay, just, just a little bit absent-minded. I'm waiting to see some of you write that down. Make sure that you're <laughs> it's 
control your shock, please. Yeah. <laughs> control your shock and just accept it. I'm not wired for that. So if I try to do that, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cause problems for myself and also the person that is supposed to be doing that. Because I'm going to make them mad. How do you get division from the church? Well, somebody is doing something that God has not called them to do. Somebody is doing something that's outside their lane. When you get outside your lane, Tony Evans says you're headed for a crack. Every time. So Paul says, I beg you in the name of Jesus that you all get on the same page, is really what he's saying, that you'd all have the same worldview. You'd all look in the same way. You'd all have the same mind, that you'd be perfectly joined together, that there be no more divisions among you. That word divisions is really the word rips or tears. The word used for ripping and fabric. When, when Peter mended his nets, it said he mended them because they were torn in this way. They were divided. He says, someone has come and has ripped the fellowship of your church apart. They've ripped the fabric of you apart. He says, stop it. He says, for it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, verse 11, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. He says, I've heard that there's bickering, that there's parties among you that are fighting with each other. So now this I say, that every one of you say it. I am a Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. He says, all of you have picked a side. Some of you say, well, I'm on Paul's side. And we do it. Some of them say, I'm on Paul's side. Some of you say, I'm on Peter's side. Some of you say, well, I'm with Jesus. And all these things have the same thing, that you want to pick something and be exclusive. Uh, Chloe was probably a wealthy woman who had a church that met, a section of the church that met in her house. They didn't have Sunday school classes back then. You know, Sunday school classes were invented in the 1800s, uh, trying to teach kids how to read, actually. Uh, they had small groups, basically. They uh, met together once a week on Sundays, and then throughout the rest of the week, you'd have 30 or 40 people that would meet in a wealthy person's house to do a Bible study in that wealthy person's house. And that's how they kept accountable to one another and kept fellowship with that was how it was structured at the time. So he said that some of the servants or family members of Chloe or maybe just some of the people from her house church had gone to Paul and said there's some division here. Now I imagine that uh, Chloe's people had already tried to sort this out and they appealed to Paul as kind of a last resort. He says there's this division. And some people say I'm a Paul person. Some people say, well, I follow Paul. Some people say, well, I'm, I'm really after Peter. Some people say, like, we can speculate about what each one of the parties uh, was about, but I, I'm not going to. We don't know. And isn't that strange? Paul does not say, you know, you need to quit your bickering. Of course, the Paul followers are right. He doesn't say, oh, you need to quit your bickering. I never taught that. You need to be on the Peter team. The people that are saying they're after Peter are the ones that tell the truth. He doesn't tell them right. Now, if it were me writing this letter, I would have been basically incapable of saying, you know, you need to quit this stupid argument. Besides, it's obvious that whoever is right. We all, I, I don't know, that's how I'm wired. But Paul knows something. That in some cases, being right is dangerous. Their problem is that they're divided and they're arguing about something that's not important. 
And for Paul to give the answer to that is only going to contribute more to their division. His point is almost, once you quit arguing about it, then I'll tell you the answer. But right now, you are not ready to receive this knowledge. Have you ever met somebody who was spiritually obese? They knew an awful lot about the Bible, but never applied any of it and never actually lived any of it out. When somebody gets to that point, the more they learn about the Bible without serving, the more dangerous they get. Because they get content. They say, oh, yes, I'm serving God. I know my Bible. And they just get more and more proud, more and more arrogant, more and more centered on themselves, and less and less centered on what matters. How does this kind of division stuff happen? It's always about personality. It's always about pride. It's always about missing what counts. Verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? The answer to that question is yes. Christ is the one whose body was broken. Was Paul crucified for you? The answer there is actually built into the Greek. It doesn't translate into English very well. But literally, the Greek says something like, Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Of course not. Paul says, I didn't die on a cross. You're not my people. <laughs> were you baptized in the name of Paul? We baptized somebody. We baptized them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We baptized them in the authority of Jesus, into Jesus' name. When Colleen and I got married, we were, she was married into my name, right? She was brought into my family. We were united in that way. When you're baptized, you are publicly proclaiming that you're part of the family of God. You're showing what God has already done in your heart, being baptized into his church. So baptism is for. Baptized, one, it's in the name of Jesus, so you can't go and baptize yourself, right? I can't go out to a beach. Not myself. Baptism is the people of God recognizing that you're one of them and setting them apart. Setting you apart through baptism—that's what baptism is for. It is the uh, so the church votes to accept people for baptism. Because the church is saying yes. This person is a Christian. This person is one of us, and then that person's baptized, not in the name of Paul, not in the name of the person doing the baptism, not in the authority of not in the authority of any person. Because when you're baptized here, if I baptize you. You're not baptized to be one of my followers, right? You're baptized to be a follower of Jesus. <laughs> but don't we get so caught up? I'll tell you a little story about, we all know Brother Ronnie uh, is going to be, he's intending, intended to be ordained as a deacon at Alvin uh, next in September the 9th. September the 9th. Um, he's come and visited with us a lot. When their services, they move their service time, so he's not able to be here anymore because now their service is at the same time as ours. But uh, his pastor has got a, a fairly large congregation and was not able to be at every cataract surgery or every whatever. And, but some of the people expected him to be. And so he said, okay, well, I'm going to break the deacons up. And I'm going to assign each deacon a certain number of people to check in on them so that when there's something minor, like sister so-and-so is having open heart surgery, but brother so-and-so is having his cataracts out, it's, I need to go to the heart surgery and somebody else can check in on the cataracts. I use cataracts just as an example of a minor, very minor procedure. Well, brother Ronnie contacted one of the people on his list. And that person got so upset, they called the pastor and said, what do you mean by saying that I can't come to you anymore? And of course, you don't really want to say, well, that's not what I said. It's not what was happening at all. 
what was happening is that I was trying to get it where the whole church was caring for the whole church and that it wasn't just me doing everything because it's not about me. You see that same attitude here? He says, you weren't baptized to follow Paul. It's not the human leader of the church that things are about. It's about your faithfulness to Jesus who died for you. See, I love all of you very much. I really do. But I didn't die for you. Now, you don't des- I don't deserve the loyalty that Jesus deserves. No human leader does. And you see, sometimes somebody will leave a church and go pastor another church, and flocks of people from the church will follow them over to their new church. Well, God didn't put you over there. God didn't put you to follow that person. God put you to be a part of that church. See, we get so caught up in people that we almost worship people. But that's not the way that God intends for things to be. Look here in the, uh, the very next verse. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Christmas and Gaius. He says, I'm glad that I didn't go around baptizing except a couple of you, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. He says, now looking back, it sure is good that I didn't baptize more of you because then some of you would claim that you had special claims to me or that you were one of my people. So I don't have anything to do with that. He said, am I baptized also the household of Stephanas? Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. He said, I baptized a, a handful of people. I don't remember if I baptized anyone else, but that was not my ministry. So he doesn't denounce baptism. Baptism is good. Baptism is important. He did it some. But he's saying because of the division, he was glad that he didn't do much personally. And here's why. He says in verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Here's our last verse. So Jesus did not send me to baptize people. Jesus sent me to preach the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. It's important for you to know, maybe you already do, but it's important for you to know what the gospel is. (coughs) In the ancient world, when Caesar conquered a new territory, he would send out people called evangelists. And they would go and they would announce to the people, they would say, Caesar, good news, good news. Caesar is the king of your world. Now, if you were the people who'd just been conquered by Caesar, you did not think that was such good news. But Caesar thought it was really good news. And so he'd send out people with the gospel. They'd say, here's the gospel that Caesar rules the world. Jesus comes onto the scene, and Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was coming, and that God was your king, not Caesar. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sin. He died took the punishment for your sin. And so he defeated your master that was sin. You've got another master. When Jesus rose again, he defeated your master that was death. The old king over us was conquered. And so the gospel is the good news that Jesus has defeated sin and death by dying and rising again. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Uh, you could read it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. I, I delivered unto you the gospel, which I also received as a first importance. How that Christ died for our scriptures, for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day. If somebody asks you what the gospel is, you need to know it's the good news that Jesus has defeated our old masters of sin and death, and that if we follow him, we'll move into his kingdom. Paul says then, 
Christ didn't send me to physically set people apart through baptism. He sent me to proclaim the good news that there's forgiveness of sins for people. He sent me to preach the gospel, to proclaim the message that you can have forgiveness. Not with wisdom of words. He didn't send me to con people. He didn't send me to be the best speaker. He didn't send me to manipulate people, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Because what you need to realize is that the cross is the renunciation of all that we can do. You want to know what's going to happen to you when you die? <coughs> it doesn't matter what I think. I don't get to decide that. I talk to people and say, you know, what's going to happen to you when you die? And they say, well, I hope I go to heaven. That's, that's a pretty big thing to say, I hope, isn't it? Like you, you walk to somebody and you say, are you going to eat anything today? Well, I sure hope that I can find some food. I would want to have some certainty about whether or not I'm going to eat. You go to a restaurant with somebody, say, hey, do you have some money to pay the bill? Well, I hope that I do. I hope that I find some. You say, are you going to be separated from God because of the sin forever? I hope not. That's a lousy way to live, isn't it? The gospel says to know. How do you know? You've got to come to the point where you say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a liar, and I'm a murderer, and I'm a thief, and I'm an adulterer, and I'm all these different things. In my heart, I am so broken. And I know that it's not about people, although I often try to follow people. I know that it's not about the fact that my grandmother was such a good Christian because it doesn't have anything to do with anybody except me standing before God. And I knew that I know that if I had to stand before God in my own strength, there would be no hope for me. But the cross is the renunciation of all I can do. The cross is saying it's not about my goodness, it's not about my words, it's not about people. It's that everything that I was, everything that I can do on my own, dies. Say, Lord, everything that I would be, kill it. Because the only life that I want is the one that you're giving. So you know what you have to do to know that you're going to go to heaven? You say, it's not about trying to be good. It's not about doing this. It's not about doing that. It's about saying, Lord, I've been a rebel, and I turn all that away. Crucify me. Kill me on the inside. I want my old life to be dead. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ. And Lord, the only life that I want is your life. The only way I want to go is your way. And when you come to that point where you say, Lord, I believe you. I trust you and you alone. God gives you your new life, right? That gives you a new heart. You say, well, I'm going to repeat a prayer. I'm going to raise my hand. It's not that simple. It's in the name of Jesus, it's not an incantation. It's a change in your heart. People can say and repeat anything. Here's what I want to know. In your heart, have you ever genuinely turned from your sin and turned to people? Or are you still caught up in following people? Are you still caught up in the things that you can do? Are you still caught up in this or that? I want to know that everybody here today can say with me, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And 
life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loved you so much that he wants you all to himself. But he's not divided, so we shouldn't be divided. So if you look at your heart now and say, is your loyalty divided? Do you follow after people? Do you follow after divisions? Do you look at things like this and that? Are you the discord sower in your family or in your church? Or do you say, Lord, I lay all that down to follow you? Do that and change it all. Let's stand as our musicians come forward. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation and give you a chance to respond. If you've never trusted Christ, you've never been saved, you don't know what's going to happen to you, see to come and you're saved. To be saved. If you want to pray by yourself about something on your heart, you can just come down to the altar. What you need to do is you need to make the decision to say, I am yours, Lord.